Well, brethren, welcome. It's good to be here with you today. Welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles. Can you believe that another year has passed? And this event that we've been looking forward to for a year now is finally here. We're here together in the place that God has chosen to place his name. We've come before him in his presence today to worship him and to honor him. And we are here at this feast to learn more about a special event that is coming in the future, the 1,000-year reign of Christ and his spiritual family, his saints, on the earth. Brethren, we're called to that event. We're called to that time. And we have to look forward to that time. The world is unaware, are they not? You look at the background behind me and you see Jerusalem, a war-torn area for thousands of years now, an area that will experience much more before Christ returns and as he returns. Yet God has called us out of that. He's opened our mind to see something new, to see something special, to see an incredible potential that we all have. God wants us to be a part of his kingdom. Brethren, Paul talks about this as our hope, a hope that stands like an anchor that holds us fast. If we don't see the kingdom, brethren, if it's not real to us, we don't have an anchor to hold us fast to the truth. Brethren, what type of society are we called to rule and reign over? What type of society will the millennium bring? For the physical human beings that live in to the millennium, from the tribulation, what will that be like? What will it be like for physical people? What types of jobs, what types of professions will exist in the kingdom of God? What details does the Bible relate about these specific aspects of God's millennial society? In the sermon today, brethren, I want to help make God's kingdom, his millennial society, more real to you. Young people, I want to make it more real to you. I want you to be able to see it and to taste it. All of us need to be able to do this. I want you to come away from the sermon today, and I hope that you will come away from the sermon today with a much more clear idea of the roles and responsibilities that individuals will have in the kingdom of God, during the wonderful world tomorrow. Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 119 as we begin. We're going to read verse 97 of Psalm 119. Here the psalmist is writing and he's musing on God's law. In fact, the entire chapter of Psalm 119 is looking at the law of God. Psalm 119 and verse 97 David says this, Oh, how love I your law, or oh, how I love your law. We sing a song about this, don't we? It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Think about that for a minute. That passage that we just read, what are the two key pieces one of them is the law. And David says, oh, how I love it. I love your law. I love your way of life. The other piece is meditation. I meditate on it all the day. Why would David meditate on the law of God all the day? Young people, think about this for a minute. And adults too. If you were asked... 
to meditate on the law of God all day long, what would you think? Boring. Oh, boy, I, how could I do that? There's so many other fun things I could be doing. If I ask you to meditate on the law of God all day here at the Feast of Tabernacles, how might you respond? Oh, but I'm going to miss out on all the activities. There's so many things to see and do. Why do I want to meditate on the law of God at the Feast of Tabernacles? Brethren, the law of God is key, and it's pivotal to the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles. To really appreciate what God has put in the Scriptures also requires meditation. Dr. Meredith has made the comment multiple times that if all we do is read our Bibles and we don't meditate, we're missing something key. Meditation is key to letting God's way of life and His kingdom live in our minds. It's key to allowing it to become real. Today, what I'd like to ask you to do is meditate with me. This sermon actually is an exercise in meditation. And it will be an exercise in meditation on the law of God and on the commandments of God and on the Old Testament primarily. But meditate with me. I challenge you. Pick this up with me. Go on this journey with me as we meditate and we muse for the next hour or so, on the ways of God and on His laws and on His statutes. Brethren, as we do this, use your imagination a little bit. Let your mind ponder, tease out what God means. And I think you'll see that the kingdom of God will become much more real. We will spend this entire Feast of Tabernacles learning more about the way of God and about God's way of life, learning more about what the kingdom will be like. We'll talk about tame animals. We'll talk about a new language, a pure language that will permeate the earth. We'll talk about peace that the earth will experience during the kingdom of God. We'll talk about the reign of Jesus Christ, who will reign with mercy and justice, but also with a rod of iron. We'll talk about all of these things in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. But all of these things that we'll talk about will help make the kingdom more real. And we need to take time to do that today. Brethren, this sermon is for the young. It is for the old. And it's for everyone in between. All of us need to capture the vision and it needs to be much more real. Question for you. Why is the carnal mind, as Romans 8, 7 says, why is it enmity against the law of God? Why is it not subject to the law of God? Why is it impossible for the carnal mind to be subject to the law of God? You know, the answer to that question is because without an understanding of God's laws and His statutes and His judgments, we cannot clearly envision the kingdom of God. Without the law, without the statutes, without what God outlines primarily in the Old Testament, and He does it in the New as well, but primarily in the Old Testament. Without that, we cannot see into the kingdom of God. We just can't. And so what has Satan done? He's orchestrated today's society to turn people, even so-called Christians, away from the law, to nail the law to the cross, to nail the statutes to the cross. And so what has he done? He removes the lens through which we can look into the kingdom. Society today can't see the kingdom because they have destroyed or they've done away with or they've buried, they've spiritualized away the law of God.
But brethren, as we look today, you'll see that with the law of God, we can see a much bigger picture if we take the time to think about it and to meditate on that. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Interesting place to start a sermon uh, at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles or near the beginning. Ezekiel chapter 37 is a chapter that we will go to not long from now on the last great day. And we'll talk about the dry bones living again. But Ezekiel chapter 37 also gives us a glimpse into society during the kingdom of God. Ezekiel chapter 37, and let's start reading in verse 24. It says, David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. So David will raise again. He will rise from the dead, very likely on the Feast of Trumpets, at the return of Jesus Christ, at the beginning of the millennium. And he'll rule and he'll reign over the 12 tribes of Israel as they return to the land of Israel that God intended for them. He'll rule and he'll reign over them. He'll rule and reign over physical people. Let's continue. They shall also walk in what? My judgments and observe my statutes and do them. During this time, people are going to live. Human beings, physical human beings are going to live according to God's judgments and his statutes as David helps implement them. Let's look at another verse in Zechariah chapter 14. We're going to start reading in verse 16 near the end of the chapter. Zechariah chapter 14. Most of us are familiar with this passage of Scripture because it's a passage that demonstrates that the, the Feast of Tabernacles will be kept in the kingdom of God during the millennium. So even after Christ returns, even after the time we begin living in, or human beings begin living in that millennium, they're still going to keep a feast that pictures the millennium. Very interesting. This is one of the verses that we can use to demonstrate God expects us to be keeping the holy days today. He gave them in Leviticus. He never did away with them. They're going to happen again. They cannot be spiritualized away. So, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. What do we read here? It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem. These are the nations that fought against Christ when he returned. These are the people who live through the millennium, or excuse me, through the tribulation into the millennium. These are individuals who experience the tribulation. They're physical as they enter the kingdom of God or the, the millennium on the earth. That they shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the statutes of God. The Feast of Tabernacles. The feast days are statutes that God gave. Verse 17, it shall come in, or shall be that whichever of the families of the earth who do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So God is going to put a penalty on people. If they don't keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they'll be penalized, no rain. But the flip side is true as well. If they do keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they're blessed with rain in due season, abundant crops, abundant growth. Let's continue. If the family of Egypt will not come up, verse 18, and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which the Lord of hosts strikes the nations with, who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be punishment on Egypt, the punishment of all the nations that do not come 
up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So God will expect this statute to be kept in the kingdom of God. Let's continue with the thought in verse 20. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, in every pot um, in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord. But what's going to happen here? Can you see this? Bells will be placed on horses. And on each of the bells will be written the phrase, holiness to the Lord. Why would that be? Isn't that sort of silly? You put horses out in the pasture and you put bells on them. and The bells ring and it says holiness to the Lord. Why would God do that? What's the point? Because when that bell rings, what will we be reminded of? What will human beings be reminded of? Worshiping and honoring the Creator, God, and His Son, Jesus Christ. You hear the bell and you're reminded, holiness to the Lord. All of this grandeur, all of this peace, all of this abundance is because of God. Every time you hear the bell. But as we think about this and we meditate on this, and we think that and understand that this is a glimpse into the kingdom of God, what does this tell us about that society? If you take a horse and you put bells on a horse and you just put it out to pasture, who's going to hear the bells? besides perhaps the other horses, some of the the bugs and other critters out there. Maybe the person who owns the horse as they go by them once in a while. But nobody benefits from that. Now, for this to be beneficial, for people to really truly be reminded what has to happen with the horses, they have to be part of society. They can't be just put out to pasture. They have to be around human beings, and human beings have to be around the horses. No, we're probably not going to just go sit and visit at somebody's house and, oh, let's go sit by the horses and listen to the bells. Horses will be part of society. They'll be used for plowing, for pulling, carts, and all kinds of things. They'll be an integral part of society. So the bells are around us, around human beings, physical human beings, constantly. And they're constantly reminded of this phrase and its meaning, holiness to the Lord. When you begin to envision that, a society that has horses integrated into it. It's different than society in the developed world today, isn't it? How many of us live around horses in the developed or the lesser developed parts of the world? Horses just aren't around very much anymore. They will be in the kingdom, and that will change society in many different ways. Let's look at another scripture here. Isaiah chapter 2. This is a passage of Scripture we'll visit throughout the Feast of Tabernacles, no doubt, because it's key and it's central. Isaiah chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 2. We have a vision of the millennium here again. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, and the term mountain in the Scripture is frequently linked to or an example of a kingdom. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains. What does that mean? The kingdom of God will be above all the kingdoms of the earth. Daniel gives us that vision as the stone comes down from heaven and hits the the image of Nebuchadnezzar, and it swallows up the whole earth. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of all the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Verse 3, many people shall come and say, Come, 
Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. Note this now, the end of verse 3. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. They shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Their implements of war will be made into implements of agriculture. Nation shall not lift up sword against any nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When the law of God permeates the earth, the law shall go forth. And in fact, later on in Isaiah, Isaiah 11, verse 9, we see that the knowledge of God, his law, his way, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. When that happens, society will change. What do we see here? Implements of war turned into implements of agriculture. No more military industrial complex that runs many of our nations, that runs the economies of many of our nations. Brethren, if you're at a feast site where there is ocean or where there is water, I encourage you, take time at the feast this year. Sit down next to that water, maybe in the morning as the sun rises or the evening as the sun sets over it, and meditate, think. Young people, you can do this too. Look out at the expanse of water and meditate how this water is depictive of how the Word of God and the law of God will permeate the earth. When you look out over a sea or an ocean and you see it, it just seems to go on forever. You realize, wow, this is vast, this is huge. The Word of God will be like that, never-ending, completely covering and permeating the earth. The law of God will do that. What a time that will be. And we, you and I, are called to rule and reign with Christ at that time, to be kings, queens, priests, teachers of the way of God. We're going to be able to work with the world, with human beings who've learned to do everything wrong. And we're going to teach them how to do it the right way, to work with them, to show them this is the way. This is the way that works. This is the abundant way. And we'll talk about that more as we move on. But we'll be able to encourage them, walk in this way, choose this way. There's going to be a time, as Isaiah 30, verse 20 says, when people will see their teachers. Who is our teacher today? God, isn't it? How many of us wake up in the morning and see God? No, I don't mean metaphorically. I don't mean we see the image of him. I don't mean we see his creation. I mean literally see him and touch him physically. We don't have that option right now. But in the kingdom of God, people will see their teachers. They'll be able to touch their teachers, you and me. And we'll be able to show them this way. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Let's go back to the law, the books of the law. Let's see what God inspired Moses to write here. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And we will start here uh, in verse 9. Deuteronomy 31 verse 9. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders. And Moses, verse 10, commanded them, saying, notice the command, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time of the year of release, and we'll talk about the year of release in just a few minutes, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes up to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law, 
before all of Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women, little ones, and the stranger who's within your gates, that they may hear, that they may learn to fear the Lord your God, and carefully observe all the words of this law, verse 13, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. So what's the command? Every seven years during the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, in the place that God has chosen to place his name at those feast sites, the law of God, literally, verbatim, word for word, is to be read to the people so they can learn to fear him, so that the younger generations who haven't understood it before can, can hear it again and be reminded of it and be taught. Brethren, what's another reason why the law of God is to be read at the Feast of Tabernacles? And why the Feast of Tabernacles? Why not the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Because at Unleavened Bread, don't we put out leaven and sin and replace that with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth? Righteousness? All God's commandments are righteousness. Wouldn't it make more sense? to read the law of God at the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Why does God say do it at the Feast of Tabernacles? Now, think about that for a moment. What does the law and the statutes, what do they have to do with the Feast of Tabernacles in the millennium? What does the law, the Ten Commandments, along with statutes and judgments, teach us about the millennium and the thousand-year reign of Christ and the saints on the earth? Let's go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. You may have talked about this in your congregations just a few days ago during the Day of Atonement. But James chapter 2 gives us an insight into this law, this law that so many have nailed to the cross, this law that so many so-called Christians today say is a burden and is a drudge. It's a ball and chain that you are dragging around behind you. You're free. You don't need to keep the law anymore. What does James say? What was James inspired by Jesus Christ to say about the law? James chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not be rich, or do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Let's skip down to verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged. What are we going to be judged by? What? This is the New Testament. This is the New Covenant to the New Covenant Church. Us. What will we be judged by? Christ? Hmm. Yes, ultimately. But what does this say? We're going to be judged by the law of liberty. James calls it a royal law and a law of liberty. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 61. This law is key to the kingdom of God. Isaiah chapter 61, we'll start reading at the beginning of the chapter. What does God say about the law through Isaiah here? 
The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, and what? To proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Brethren, the world is held captive today in the prison bonds and shackles designed and created by Satan the devil, the god of this world. They're stuck. They're imprisoned. Yet we are to proclaim liberty to the captives. And it's this perfect law of bondage? No. Perfect law of liberty that will free these people. It'll free the people of the world. When we keep the law of God, we're free. That's just the opposite of what worldly Christianity teaches today, isn't it? Am I crazy? Am I nuts? Am I deceived? Are you deceived by Dr. Meredith, who teaches this, and by his predecessor, Herbert W. Armstrong, who taught this concept? Armstrongism? No. Brethren, Watch with me as we go forward from this point on. God's law is a perfect law of liberty that will free the captives of the world who are held captive by Satan the devil and by his society. Why is God's perfect law of liberty and what society will look like when the perfect law of liberty is in place and fully being practiced important? Let's look. Let's ask a question, though. Brethren, when we look at society around us, how many laws and statutes does society have? Thousands? Tens of thousands? We have these individuals who are leaders in our nations, and we call them what? Lawmakers. There aren't enough laws, so we have to make more laws. Almost every day, new laws and statutes are being added. How many laws will there be in the kingdom of God? Ten? Ten laws. We call the Ten Commandments. Now you tell me, and granted there will be statutes as well that help flesh out the Ten Commandments. But which one is more oppressive? Ten thousand laws or ten? Ten thousand things you can't do or must do? Or ten? Which one is more freeing? Just looking at the math. Yeah, you, you know the answer to that. Brethren, let's look at what it's going to be like. Exodus 20. Let's look at the law and think about and let it show us how society will change and how society will be freed. How the captives in Satan's society will be freed by the law of God. Does that even make sense? Again, the world would say we're nuts for teaching that. But if the world could sit here with us today and go through these scriptures and meditate on them with us, they would give up the ways of the world. Because God's way is so simply clear and easy and wonderful. Yet they have to reject this way, and so they call us nuts. As Romans says, enmity do they have against the law of God. Satan has orchestrated that because if the world could see what we see in the law of God, they'd reject Satan's way in a heartbeat and they would come this way because it's so much better and it's clear. 
Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. What are we going to read? The Ten Commandments. The law, the undergirding of the kingdom of God that will permeate the earth as the waters cover the sea when Christ returns. This is what we will teach to the world. Verse 1 of Exodus 20. God spoke all these things, all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord. Look in your Bible. Most of our Bibles have the word Lord capitalized in all capital letters. This word, this Lord, who is this Lord? Let's just skip down for a moment and look at verse 11. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord, this is the same entity, the same being, made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he rested in them on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath, and he hallowed it. This same Lord who gave these commandments is the same Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the seas. Who is that Lord? We don't have time in the sermon today, but maybe tonight in your own Bible study or tomorrow as you're doing Bible study before you come to church in the morning, look up Colossians chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17. Read through the first half of John Chapter 1, this Lord who created the heavens and the earth is the same one in Colossians chapter 1 who we are told is Jesus Christ, the one who created all things in the heaven and all things on the earth. It's one and the same being. So this one who gave the Ten Commandments is the one who became Jesus Christ. These are Christ's words that we're going to read. And this is Christ's law. And Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, isn't he? Keep that in mind as we read these. You shall have no other gods before me. Simple command, but what does it mean? Think about it. No other gods before me. That means no Muhammad that we worship. Just God in Christ. No Muhammad. What happens when you get rid of Muhammad? You destroy the religion of one point, roughly 1.5 billion Muslims. Islam is gone. What happens when you worship one God? You get rid of Hinduism. Roughly almost a billion people are Hindus around the world. Not only do you get rid of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, but you also get rid of several million with an M, additional Hindu gods, and all of the other worship that goes along with it. People stop worshiping cows. They stop worshiping the earth goddess. They stop worshiping wind and fire and earth and air. They stop worshiping plants. They stop worshiping images made in the image of a false god. They stop worshiping a Buddha. They stop worshiping knowledge. They stop worshiping science. They worship one God. Can you imagine a world with one religion? John Lennon tried as he wrote his song, Imagine. Except he imagined a world with no religion because religion confuses. It oppresses in worldly ways. It, it leads people to war and destruction. How many people over the eons of time have gone to war over religion and religious beliefs and differences? What does it mean 
when this command is instituted, implemented fully. Let's go down to verse... Um, 15. It says, you shall not steal. Let's meditate on this commandment for just a moment. What does it mean not to steal? And brethren, let's fast forward into the millennium. What will it be like in a society that no longer has stealing? Think about it for a moment. You'll be able to leave your things out and nobody will take them. What else does this mean? No stealing. It means that there will be no bars on windows anymore. There will be no locks on doors anymore. No locks on doors of your car or your home or your dwelling at the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll be able to leave your pocketbook or your second tithe out on a seat and nobody will take it. You'll be able to leave your laptop computer or your camera out as you go to the beach and nobody will abscond with it, walk away with it. What else does this commandment mean? Think about it. What will it be like to live in a world with no locks on doors? What does that change, brethren? Think with me. Meditate on this. This little short commandment has incredible meaning for the kingdom of God. This commandment, if only this commandment was kept, the world would change in so many drastic ways you wouldn't recognize it. If you get rid of locks on doors and locks on windows, what else do you get rid of? Criminals who steal, which means you get rid of a system designed to handle criminals that steal. The criminal justice system in the court system goes away. Jails, prisons go away. Prison, the jobs in those prison systems, the jobs in the judicial systems disappear. What else goes away? The job of a locksmith goes away because you don't have locks anymore. The job of manufacturing companies that make locks and make keys disappear and they go away. So all those jobs go away. The policemen go away. There is no police force anymore to deal with people that steal. Do you see how just this one commandment begins to change society? Do you ever feel anxious? when you're about, or have you ever left your home and forgotten to lock your door and you're nervous about that, somebody might steal something? What else comes with stealing going away? Nervousness, worry goes away. We don't worry anymore. Pressure, fear can begin to go away. Many of you have children, small children or grandchildren. I have younger children. And especially when they were very young, we traveled a lot with them. And one of our concerns and our prayers was, God, protect our family, because people steal children in this world, don't they? They steal children. And kids, you don't need to be afraid, but you do need to stick around your parents. That's why they tell you, don't get away from me. Stay close to me. Don't run off. People take beautiful little children. And as a parent, that is a constant concern. Where's my child? I've got to keep an eye on my child. And when they get out of your eye shot, the blood starts to boil and you feel it in your face. Where did they go? Are they okay? Did somebody take my child? Especially if you can't find them for a few minutes. In a world where there's no more stealing, there's no more stealing of children. In Charlotte last year, we had a congregational camp out. 
And we had a, a long weekend camp out on an island, and we were the only ones on the island. And it was just a little tiny glimpse of what the kingdom might be like. We were able to leave our utensils out, all of our things out, because nobody was going to take it. We were the only ones on the island. And it even gave the parents and the children some freedom. We still had to keep an eye on our kids to make sure they didn't get hurt. But we weren't constantly looking over our shoulder for strangers who might take our children because God's people don't do that. Think about how that will change society. How will it change society for parents to raise teenagers in a world where there's no more stealing? And where as a parent, you know that no one's going to steal the virginity of your teenage daughter. Think about the impact of that. Think about the impact of no one stealing husbands and wives anymore. Brethren, this is one commandment, but as we meditate on it, it gives us a glimpse into the kingdom of God and a society, a millennial society that will be so different from today, so wonderful, so filled with peace. Brethren, this is what the commandments do for us. They help us see into the kingdom. This is one of the reasons why they were commanded to be read at the Feast of Tabernacles every seven years. What about another commandment? How about number four, verse eight? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, the Sabbath command has two sides to it, and oftentimes we focus on the rest side, which is appropriate. But let's look at the other side, too, as we try and understand through this commandment how the world will change and be different in the kingdom. Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. God commands us to work for six days. Now, he doesn't mean you have to work in your regular job six days, but we need to be productive six days a week. We can't just rest and relax and lay on our beds all week long. God wants us to work. So what happens if you have a society where everyone is working, where no one is just slouching or being a leech off of the system? Everybody's working. Everybody's productive. You know, the Bible says elsewhere that those who don't eat are not, or excuse me, those who don't work are not worthy to eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. It changes the way we live. There's no one living in society anymore who just expects to get, get, get. No, you give six days and then you rest. What is one of the reasons you rest on the seventh day and you have to work the other six? Why does God do that? Because he wants there to be a contrast between the days of the week and the day that he sanctified. Continue on, verse 10. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, as we read a minute ago. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord, what did he do? He blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The day, the seventh day was blessed, sanctified, and hallowed. And many today will say it doesn't matter what day you keep. As long as you're close to Christ, you need to have a Sabbath every day. No, God took the day. It's not man that's made the day special. 
It's not man that worships a day. God made the day special. He's the one who separated. And he's the one who said celebrate on this day. But he said rest. Do not work. What's one of the problem, problems with our pension system today? It can promote. It's not all bad. It's a blessing. But it can promote people lounging around all week long. If you are retired and you don't work, and many retired people do work, they volunteer their time, maybe they go back to work part-time, they're involved in all kinds of activities, giving and serving, that's just the way it needs to be. But if all we do when we're retired is get up in the morning, do several hours of Bible study, lounge, relax, we're retired. How is the Sabbath different? How is the Sabbath a contrast if we do that every day? Now, we're to work six days, to labor, to be productive in that way, serving, giving, building. And then that seventh day is a breather. It's, it's a day of rest. It's a day that is set apart. And it's interesting here. It's a day that is set apart for everyone. Notice the servants that you have even rest. They don't serve you anymore. Most of us don't have servants today. Some of us own businesses, though. And we have employees who, in a sense, are a servant. They work for us. They make money for the company for us. So our employees can't be working for us on the Sabbath. Yes, I might not be working, but they're working for me. Not only am I paying them to work on that day, I'm paying them for their labor on that day, but they're also making me money on that day. So our servants are not to work, but who else doesn't work? The cattle! Even the cows and the horses get a day off, a day of rest. All of the earth comes to a grinding halt. Think about this. How will that be different than today? Those of you who live in and around cities, what is it like on the Sabbath? Saturday, cars going to and fro. Saturday, in many of the locations that I've lived, is a day that people work in their yards. And you hear lawnmowers, and you hear hedge trimmers, and you hear chainsaws. People get ambitious working on their properties on that day. Saturday's a big shopping day. You go by any store or mall, and the parking lots are filled on the Sabbath. Cars are traveling here and there, to and fro on the Sabbath. What will society be like when all of the stores are closed, all of the facilities are closed? Nobody is working on the Sabbath. Think about the peace. Think about the quiet. Think about the stillness. What will that be like? How will it change the world? I lived... We, I grew up in a town for a couple of years, Loma Linda, California. The town is basically all Seventh-day Adventists. And because they keep the Sabbath, they had the run of the town. The schools, the Seventh-day Adventist schools, all let out at noontime on Friday afternoon. They understood the concept of a preparation day for the Sabbath. The kids went home at noontime to help get ready for the Sabbath. All of the stores, the gas stations, the banks closed by 2 p.m. in the afternoon to give people time off to go home, to prepare for the Sabbath, to slow down. You know, here at headquarters, uh, Dr. Meredith has put in place a statute, if you will, that the office closes early on Fridays. In the wintertime, when the sun sets early, we actually close at 3.30 in the afternoon. And uh, those of us who are really trying hard try to get out 
of the office by 3.30 so we can go home and prepare for the Sabbath. It's a neat blessing and gift. Brethren, what will it be like if all of society shuts down at noontime on Friday afternoon and everybody goes home to get ready for the Sabbath? It's quiet. People are working to prepare. You move into the Sabbath and you've got your shoes shined and you've got your clothes ironed and you've got your dress pressed. You've got the meals made ahead of time. Everything's taken care of. And when the sun sets, you can rest and you can reflect and there's nothing else to do. You get up on Saturday morning. You don't have to do lots of things. You can go for a walk. You can meditate on the Word of God. You can pray. You can study. You can teach the kids. But nobody's running to and fro, scrambling, trying to get ready for the Sabbath. Oh, I didn't press my dress. Or, you know what, I've got a stain on my suit coat. Or, um, I've got a scuff on my shoes. Or, you know, the car is really dirty. I don't want to go to church like this. I might need to do something else. Maybe vacuum the car. No, that's not needing to be done because you've prepared properly on Friday or Friday afternoon, the day of preparation. Something we should be learning to do today but something the earth will do in the world tomorrow. Brethren, can you see how the world will change? How society will change when just these couple of commandments are put into place? Let's look at some more detail. Let's look at some statutes. What else will change in the world tomorrow, in God's kingdom? Leviticus chapter 25. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 25, we read... Um, earlier about the Feast of Tabernacles being kept and the law being read during the year of release, the seventh year. Remember, and you may have talked about this again on the Feast on the Day of Atonement, but God has a cycle, a 50-year cycle. It's called the Jubilee Cycle. And that 50-year that cycle is divided into seven segments of seven years plus one year. All of society will be on the same cycle in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter when you're called. It doesn't matter when you're baptized. We'll all be on the same 7 and 49, 50 year cycle. So year one is the same for everyone. It doesn't differ. And it has to be this way because it has to work society wide. Otherwise, it would create division, and you wouldn't see the lessons that God intends to be learned. Let's look at this. Chapter 25 of Leviticus, in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. What is a Sabbath? It's a, it's a day of rest. The land will keep a rest to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field. Six years you shall prune your vineyard, gather in its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So you plant for six years, you reap for six years. And as you begin that seventh year, you don't touch it. You don't sow. So no new planting for that seventh year. Nor do you pick and as you know, if you leave a field go, you're going to have new volunteer crops that come up on their own. A garden will do the same thing. If you have a vineyard of grapes and you don't touch it, next year, guess what? It's going to bear grapes. Whether or not you do anything to those grapevines. The same thing with fruit trees. If you have a mango tree, if you're blessed with one of those. 
if you have an apple tree, if you have a pecan tree or pecan tree, you don't touch it next year, it's still going to bear fruit. Yet you're not supposed to prune. You're not supposed to take from the field. What grows of its own accord, verse 5, of your harvest, you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year for the land to rest. Verse 6, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for your male, for your female servants, for your hired man, for the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its produce shall be for food. So it's not to go to waste, but you as the landowner are hands off. You don't take from it. But if you have servants, if you have animals, they are to eat from these things. Exodus chapter 23. In fact, keep your hand there in Leviticus. But let's go to Exodus 23, uh, verse 10, for a brief additional piece of information. It says, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest or lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. So the Sabbath gives us this blessing. This is actually, this statute is tied to the Sabbath command. One of the big ten. This is an extension of the Sabbath. There's a Sabbath of years. Why does God give the Sabbath? So everyone and everything, including the earth, can rest. If you don't plant next year and you let your fields overgrow, and they may grow with weeds and all kinds of things, You're not going to be taking extra out of the soil and it will begin to replenish. The land Sabbath is a year of plenty for the poor who don't have. If you've got fruit all over your trees and you're not picking it, the poor who don't have a lot can come in and they have abundance that year. You've got extra left over from the previous year. On that sixth year, God gives you an overflow, enough food to last you through the seventh year and the planting of the eighth. So you've got plenty. The poor come in and they take all they can handle. And then when they can't handle anymore, what do you do? You get the cows and you get the horses and you get the sheep and you get the goats and you put them in the field and they eat and they have plenty. And what else do they do while they're in the field? Think about this. This is part of God's land Sabbath concept. They eat and they they add fertilizer to the ground. And then what do they do? You know, you take those cloven hoofs, especially with cows and with sheep and goats, deer, maybe. They, well, the horses will mash it flat, and then the cows and the sheep will push it into the ground. It's a a rototiller. It's a tilling system. So they, they eat the food, they fertilize it, and they till it into the ground. After a year of that, what do you have? on the eighth year when you begin to plant again. You have rich soil. You have rejuvenated soil. The animals put a lot of nutrients back into the soil that have been taken out over the last six years of planting, as did the breaking down of the plants. You know, after they've eaten the ends of the wheat that may have been in the field, or they've eaten some of the tomatoes 
and you've just got vines left, they begin to break those down and crunch them into the ground. You've got organic matter that goes back into the soil. And it puts all kinds of nutrients into the soil. So at, at the beginning of the eighth year, you have abundance and you have land and dirt that is black and it's rich and it can grow all kinds of things. It's been renewed, made new. What will it be like when we don't suck all the nutrients out of our land anymore and we plant our plants in land that is rich? Then we have fruits and vegetables that are rich in nutrients and they have all that God intended. You have healthier people. You have much better tasting food. This is part of the kingdom of God, brethren. This is part of the kingdom. And people are going to have land, aren't they? What if everybody has a horse, as we read about in Zechariah? Because you need to have the bells. You need to be around that animal. How much pasture land do you need for a horse? Well, for cows, experts, ranchers know that you need probably in, in, a, in an abundant area about three acres per cow. What if you need three acres per horse? Just for them to graze on. You're also going to need extra land to produce hay for them. And then if you've got your own vine and fig tree, grapevines take up space. They run. Fig trees grow huge. Of course, you might want a mango tree. I'd like a mango tree if I were a human being. Maybe an avocado tree. Maybe a coconut tree. Definitely a peach tree. You're talking about land and space that is going to be needed. Most people are going to be tied to the land. And we have to be because God's cycle, His 50-year cycle with seven-year intervals, is a cyclical piece that ties us to the land. It's an agrarian cycle. The moon, as it rotates, is part of an agrarian cycle. And we're going to be using the moon again in the kingdom of God. It sets the dates for the holy days. And the priesthood will be using that. Brethren, as we begin to look at these statutes, we begin to see society. Society will be different. Society will change. And we're called to be part of that. Let's look back to... Um, Actually, Exodus chapter 22. <clears throat> we could go on with the land Sabbath principles and with the year of release. There's other things that will happen in that year of release. Slaves being released, for example. But there's a magnification of this year of release because in the 50th year of this cycle, remember, all of society is on the same cycle. It happens at the same time for everyone. We see something else happening, this jubilee this incredible year of release. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor, and we're going to talk for a minute here, or for just a few minutes, about the economics of the kingdom of God. Again, just a glimpse of what economy, the economy will look like, what lending practices will look like. And I want you to think about and contrast them with today and what lending practices are like today. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If somebody needs money and they're poor, yes, lend them the money. Yes, expect to be paid back, but don't charge them interest. How does society work today? If I need money and I'm poor, I'm charged more interest than if I need money and I'm not poor because I'm considered a credit risk. But what does that do with poor people? It keeps them in a cycle that keeps them poor. 
God, as you'll see in just a few minutes, has designed a cycle in his jubilee cycle and in his economic principles to allow people who are poor to come up out of that, to give them every opportunity to not be poor anymore, to not stay in that lower caste, if you will, but to be able to rise up. Our society today in so many ways is designed to keep the poor poor and keep the rich rich. God wants everyone to have abundance. Why did Christ come, John 10.10? So that we can have life and have it more abundantly. Let's continue here. Uh, You should not charge him interest. If you take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, verse 26, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is the only cover, if that is the only covering, um, for that is his only covering. It is a garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. But we're to take care of the poor. We're not supposed to use them. We're not supposed to take advantage of them. And so many of the aspects of society we have take advantage of the poor. We're not to charge them interest. And certainly that does happen today. What will it be like if you need money in your physical being in the kingdom And somebody lends it to you, and all you have to do is pay it back without interest. You can pay it back quickly. You can pay it back much more quickly and get out of debt much more quickly. In the United States today, you can actually take out 30-year loans on homes. But what does that do? It makes you in debt for 30 years. It's a problem. Leviticus 25. Leviticus chapter 25. Let's read about this jubilee a little bit more. Go back to the chapter that we were in. We'll start in verse 8, I believe. Leviticus 25, 8, You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. So seven sets of seven years. Seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be for you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. So this is on the Day of Atonement that this sounds. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate that 50th year, set it apart, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. Let's continue. The 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows in its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat of its produce of the field. This is the year of jubilee. Brethren, everyone is going to be doing this at the same time. Think about it. If you've got a more agrarian society where many, many jobs are tied to the land and the whole society stops preparing the land and uh, tilling the land and reaping crops from the land, what's going to happen? Well, if you're using cattle and oxen to help till the soil, what happens to the cattle and oxen? They have a year of rest. They can recover. What happens to the landowner? Guess what? You can focus on things that you never have time to focus on because you're not focusing on the land. The whole society experiences this time, this rest. Why is it a jubilee? Because so many people don't do the work they normally do. It's like a year off. And because you've saved from the crops of the previous years and God's given you abundance then, 
You've got plenty of food. It's almost like a paid vacation for a year, in a sense. There will be plenty to do. But you're not going to have to sweat and toil like you did before. Think about it. If society understood this, how many people in their right mind would not want to say, you know what, I'd love a paid vacation for a year. What a gift from God this is. Let's continue here. It's a year of Jubilee, verse 13. You shall return, each shall return to his own possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years, verse 15, after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. We'll explain that in a minute. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear the Lord your God, for I am the Lord. Verse 23, let's skip down. Bear with me for a minute as we read this, and then I'm going to interpret this and we can see what it means. The land shall, verse 23, not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, and you are strangers and sojourners with me. So the land belongs to God, not people. It's a gift he gives, but the land is his. Verse 25, if any of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if he is redeeming, has redeeming relatives who come to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the land has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it or buy it back, then let him count the years since the sale and restore the remainder to the man whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. Verse 28, if he's not able to have it restored to him, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And the Jubilee shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. Brethren, do you see what this means? When we look at the earth today, we know that most of the world's population, I want to think of 75 to 80 percent, it may be higher, live in cities. They don't live in land. They live in cities. 75 to 80 percent of the entire world's population live in cities. There is no land. And why? Because things happen and you have to leave your land. You run off your land or you don't have money and you have to sell it. And you can't afford to be there anymore. But when that happens, brethren, the land stays out of your family. It never comes back to you unless you can scrounge up the money to buy it. And usually it's more expensive than when you sold it. God has created a system that prevents people from buying other people's land and holding on to it in, in perpetuity. No big, vast mega farms anymore that continue to go generation after generation. What God has done is he's created a system that will return land to the families on a 50-year cycle. What it says is that if for some reason you need to sell your land, you look at the Jubilee, you see how many years into that 50-year cycle you are, and you sell the land for a price based on the years that are left in the Jubilee, how many years of harvest people can make money off of who you sell the land to. If you buy the land back, and you can come up with the money to do that, let's say you buy it five years later, you reduce the price, the purchase price by five years' worth of produce. What it also says is if you come to be poor and you sell your land, because it's family land, 
If you have a brother or a sister who wants to purchase that land back from the family, they can do it. And the landowner, who is not a family member, can't say no. They have to sell it back. What this says is that if you come into hard times and you have to sell your land, but maybe 10 or 15 years later you have the money to buy it back, you can do it. And you buy it back at a prorated cost. So you pay less for it than you sold it for. People can't take advantage of you. What this also means is that if for some reason, let's say in year 35 of the 50-year cycle, you hit hard times and you have to sell your land, no matter what, in 15 years at that next jubilee, all of the land comes back to your family. Family land will be family land. Family land will never leave forever. Brethren, do you see how this is designed to help people who are poor, who hit hard times? God has made allowances for it all. This is the statute for land use in the kingdom of God. How will this change society, brethren? If this were enforced today, how would it change things? My family, part of my family were farmers in western Pennsylvania years ago, a couple hundred years ago. A number of years ago, we had the opportunity to go back and visit the farmland that my grandmother grew up on. We had to knock on the door of the farmhouse and get permission to walk around the property. That was my family's land. My family hasn't owned that land for 30 or 40 years and probably will never own that land again in this life. But you walk around this land and you realize my grandmother grew up there and her father and their family, and their family grew up in this land. And it's gone. And it will never come back in this life. That will not happen in the kingdom, brethren. Those of us who live in cities, <laughs> think about it. What will it be like for people who've lived in cities to live on the land someday? To have land that is perpetually in the family and released back when mistakes are made. That will change the world, brethren. It will change the world. No longer will you have landed gentry who buy up more and more land and become these powerful landowners and everybody has to bow down to them. No, because at the end of a jubilee cycle, they lose it. <laughs> it goes away. It goes back to the families. God evens the playing field over and over again through this jubilee cycle. Can you see it, brethren? how it's going to change things. Generations that come from you in the future are going to have their own land, and that will be family land with your name on it. And you'll be able to go back and visit, and you'll be a spirit being, and you'll be able to sit in a house and in a fireplace, next to a fireplace maybe, go fishing in a creek, and know that this land is God's, that He's given to these people forever. Brethren, God's laws, His statutes, His judgments give us an incredible glimpse into the kingdom. They can help us see what life will really be like if we take time to meditate on them. We have been called to teach people in the world tomorrow how to live by God's perfect law of liberty. We've been called to help implement that law, to take it to the world and to help it Encompass the earth as the waters cover the sea. Today we've taken a little glimpse into the society of the millennium by simply meditating on some passages in the books of the law. 
That's all we've done. We've taken just a couple, just a few, but we've teased them out. We've thought about the implications in the long term of keeping these things. Brethren, God's law and his statutes are the perfect law of liberty. They are what enables us to begin to develop an understanding of what God's millennial society will really be like. Man's flawed society under Satan's influence and his lies is what has held society captive for nearly six millennia. Brethren, when the endless and futile laws of man are finally replaced with God's simple and perfect law, when humanity begins to really live by God's perfect law, then liberty will finally be experienced by the entire world. And we are called to help humanity truly learn to live by these laws. Brethren, when God's kingdom finally comes and the great tribulation finally comes to an end, the nations and peoples who remain will need to be taught God's way and how to live by his statutes. This is our calling for at least the first thousand years of God's kingdom. God's laws and statutes begin to paint a picture of what it will be like in the kingdom. They add great clarity to our understanding of the millennium and what it will be like. This is one of the powerful reasons why God commanded the law to be read at the Feast of Tabernacles every seven years. Brethren, I encourage you during the feast, meditate on God's laws and his statutes while you're at the feast. Ponder over their impact on God's new and perfect society. Take time in the afternoon when you're with brethren, in the evening while you're eating, to talk about how the laws of God might change the world. Tease these things out. There are eight other big commandments we didn't talk about. There are many statutes that, when they're implemented, will again change the world vastly. And when we think about their implementation, we can see more and more deeply into the kingdom of God. Brethren, I encourage you, don't just read the laws of God and the statutes, but take time to think about them and their impact. As you travel during the feast and travel about during the feast, note what aspects of the society we're in now actually do function according to some of the laws of God and the statutes of God. And also, what aspects of society will drastically be changed in the kingdom? Brethren, as you do this, God's kingdom will become more real to you. You'll be able to see it. It will be clearer than it's ever been before. Brethren, and your hope will become more real than it's ever been before. Through God's laws, through his statutes, brethren, you can begin to see directly into God's millennial society. Welcome to the feast. Brethren, have fun at this feast. Use the laws, meditate on them, learn, and come to more deeply see and appreciate the ultimate fulfillment and the true millennial society of God.